This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, June 28th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. We know what the health care bill does, the bill that's being considered by the Senate, if it does do anything when it eventually comes to a vote. It will cost people some insurance, millions of people, in fact. It will make it more expensive for the kind of people that you'd least expect Trump to want to punish, a lot of his voters, a lot of white older voters. And it does generally give less assistance to poorer people to buy insurance. Now, here is an example of generally the news reporting this from NPR, generally what the bill does. This bill does allow insurers to charge older people more than they do now. And the Affordable Care Act has limits on that. It allows insurers to charge older people three times more than it charges the youngest. This bill allows that to go up to five times more. So the hope is that it will lower premiums for younger people. But at the same time, the Congressional Budget Office says it's going to raise premiums for older people. But in the specific, turns into statements like this, which I read, a mid-level silver plan for a 60-year-old man could cost 10500 a year compared with 3864 if he were 21. Or if you really want to be technical, you have to put it in specific locales because the price is different in different places. And you get statements like this. The Kaiser Family Foundation looked at Grant County, Nebraska. They estimated that under the new GOP plan, a 40-year-old man earning around $30,000 would lose $3,670 in tax credits, more than 10% of his income. A 60-year-old man with the same earnings would lose $12,950. Here are some more stats of this ilk. We have Sarah Cliff on the weeds. I think the person who does best in this is like a 21-year-old who lives in New York City. And the person who does worst in this is like a 63-year-old who who lives in like rural Alaska or Midwest. Here is John Dickerson being a little more general on Face the Nation recently. But what of these studies that show, you know, a 64-year-old, his premiums go from 1,700 to 14,000? That's not affordable. I wonder, with all the counties and all the age brackets and all the plan levels, I just hope one day they're going to mention me. You know, 45-year-old Kings County likes his platinum plan. I'm like, oh, they're talking about me. It's like on drive time radio in the morning when they give the weather and you hope they mention your town. Today at 76 in Ronkonkoma, 72 in Quag, 75 in Massapequa, out in Oceanside at 74, 77 at the airport. Oceanside! They said Oceanside! We've made it! It does seem like a really inefficient way to learn about how health policy will affect you. I guess people are saying, well, once we're going to get the media to list every county and every demographic, and then we'll finally be able to weigh in on what we think about this health care plan. 27-year-old making $20,000 a year. Under the GOP plan, they get $2,000 back with these new tax credits. Under Obamacare, they got $3,000 back. That is true. But under Palpatine Care, a 320-year-old female Wookiee will see premiums rise 200 units. Under Dungeon Master Care, a fifth-level cleric will experience a loss of 14 hit points. Under Seuss Care, a man with no hair will surely not fare, as well as a bear who lives in a lair in Green Bay or Eau Claire. Under Fonzie Care, a 19-year-old male on the silver plan will find his rates rise from cool 
too uncool. And thus, the rich quilt of these United States will be woven together with rate changes and deductible increases. On the show today, I spiel about what things would be like during a normal presidency. I love that concept. (laughs) And also, two conversations. We'll do a penguin census. Need I say more? But first, Washington Post journalist Mark Fisher, who recently sought to become a tiny bulwark against awfulness in Washington, D.C. Let's see how that went. Mark Fisher writes for the Washington Post. He's a senior editor there. He's, uh, if it's in the news pages, he has covered it over the years from being stationed in Germany to writing about news and politics. Recently, he wrote about Jamie Gorelick, who is the Trump or actually Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump's lawyer. She was also a leading liberal. Some say she might have been Hillary Clinton's attorney general. The headline of that article was when a liberal power lawyer represents the Trump family, things can get Hello, Mark. Thanks for coming on. Great to be with you. So I really want to talk about, this is kind of odd, I I don't even want to talk about the whole article. I want to talk about a paragraph within the article, a paragraph that got some attention. But to get there, could you just summarize or talk a little bit about the gist of the article? Sure. This article came about because Jamie Gorelick is one of the big power players in Washington and she is the latter-day Clark Clifford or Edward Bennett Williams, all these sort of classic figures from uh, Washington's history who represented people on both sides of the aisle. When you got in big trouble, you'd go to one of these power lawyers and it didn't matter that the power lawyer was a Democrat and you were a Republican. If you needed help, that's where you went. Jamie Gorelick still plays that role. She's one of the first women to play that role. And she's playing that role these days for Jared Kushner and his wife, Ivanka Trump, in their various uh, troubles and questions and investigations. And a lot of Jamie Gorelick's friends, mostly liberal Democrats who, like her, supported Hillary Clinton, became outraged that their friend Jamie was out there defending uh, people in the Trump administration, even in the Trump family. And they thought that this was going beyond the professional obligation to help people who need a a good defense and was actually aiding and abetting uh, the Trump administration. And so a lot of of lawyers, big power lawyers in Washington, said Jamie Gorelick had gone too far. Right. So Jamie Gorelick was on the 9-11 Commission. She's extremely powerful. She has represented liberals and conservatives in this long tradition of lawyers who represent liberals, conservatives, Republicans, Democrats. You have to do it if you want to be truly powerful in Washington. The difference here that you were trying to put your finger on was, is there something about representing a Trump that is a break from the past. Yeah, and uh, Hillary Rosen, who's a longtime friend of Jamie Gorelick, she used to be a big lobbyist. She's a prominent Democratic strategist in Washington. She tweeted, hey, Jamie Gorelick, you've just poured that complicit perfume on yourself, uh, which was a reference to that Saturday Night Live parody about Ivanka Trump's uh, scent. And uh, so this is just an indicator of the unhappiness among many of her friends. Now, that said, there are a lot of people who believed, Alan Dershowitz among them, that what Jamie Gorelick is doing in representing the Trump family is the highest expression of a lawyer's obligation, that you take all comers, that you take especially the unpopular causes and you defend the people uh, who are are most loathed uh, and that that is really a, a moral high ground. Did this make it in your story, the fact that John Adams defended the British in trial over the Boston Massacre? 
Yeah, it did. And that is uh, – that's kind of one of the classic examples yeah. that uh, you know folks in law school will use. Defending unpopular clients is kind of the core moral obligation of being a lawyer. John Adams agreed back in 1770 when he was a lawyer up in Boston. He agreed to defend the British soldiers who shot American rebels in the Boston massacre. This was not a popular decision on John's part. But he later said that it caused him great anxiety, but it was one of the most gallant and disinterested actions of my whole life. Okay, that is excellent foundation for understanding this paragraph that jumped out at me. It begins in a quintessentially DC move. Why don't you, why don't you read that to us? Sure. In a quintessentially DC move, some longtime friends of Gorella contacted for this article offered complimentary comments about her on the record, and then, after asking if they could make other remarks without attribution, bashed their colleague to smithereens. Those people will not be quoted in this article by name or anonymously as one tiny bulwark against outright awfulness. How did you come to write that paragraph and phrase it in that way? Well, I had spoken to several, uh, three in fact, lawyers and friends of Jamie Gorelick who – when I said, what do you think of her representing Jared and Ivanka? They said, well, that's an obligation of a lawyer and she has the right to choose her clients like anyone else and so on. Sort of the standard lawyerly response. And then they said some version of, can we go off the record? Can we go on background? And they went on to bash her to smithereens, as I said in the piece. They said, this is outrageous. She's going back on her basic political principles. They were really angry with her and upset with her, but they didn't want that under their own name in the story. And that just struck me as so two-faced. You know, it's one thing to bash your friend on background and appear as a, a as an anonymous quote in a story. But to say the opposite of what you believe and then ask to be quoted anonymously saying what you really believe is just a bridge too far. You know, it's not like this is the first time that's ever happened. There are people in Washington and elsewhere, of course, who who, uh, who try to get away with that. And I thought that uh, my role as, as a representative of, of the people who would be reading this story uh, was to give them a clean shot at the facts, namely what people really believed, and to call them on this two-facedness. In the past, have you ever used such a quote, an off-the-record quote, when that very person is quoted by name saying something opposite in the story? I, I mean, I can't absolutely say I've never done it because I just don't remember, but I, I certainly don't remember having done that. I mean, that just seems to me not not fair and totally uh, misleading to the reader. And so I just thought, you know, readers need to know that this is what people are trying to do. Yes. What have been the ripples of your paragraph? Well, it certainly got a fair amount of attention and um, some of the people who uh, I talked to for the story, uh, you know, called wanting to know who those people were <laughs> yeah. uh, who, who I was referring to. and People who really get how journalism works. Because, yeah. <laughs> right. You know, since I did agree to let them tell me that bashing part uh, on background, I can't say who they were. Even people who really know how journalism works and how Washington works uh, nonetheless uh, say, well, can't you just tell me? And no, actually, I can't. But it opened a lot of eyes to people around the country who, who don't live in, in this environment uh, to just how, how much uh, of a chess game there is going on, not only in 
politics, but in all of the allied fields in law and even in, in journalism, in the relationship between sources and reporters. And some people reacted to the story saying, a pox on all your houses. Mm -hmm. This just shows the essential corruption of Washington and all of its institutions. Um, and others said, hey, you know, this happens in every field. And they gave me examples of this happening in, in business and in finance, in, uh, in, in education and, you know, plenty of other fields where people, uh, you know, amazingly, Washingtonians are not the only people in the world who can be two-faced. Yeah. And do you think that there's any – well, the fact that The Post, uh, The Times, a bunch of other newspapers uh, recently are taking a harder line against anonymous sources, that probably helps you as a journalist. It's always great to be able to say to a source, I can't use this unless you give me something on the record. Um, and sometimes that's, uh, that's absolutely the case and sometimes you're using that as a negotiating tactic um, and sometimes they know that. So, you know, they're not dummies. Um, so it's, it's hard and, you know, and sometimes people have really legitimate reasons for not having their name attached to something and sometimes they're just cowardly and, and you need to be able to find a way to communicate that to the reader. Mark Fisher is a senior editor at The Washington Post. He is a paragon of his profession. I will say that on the record, but off the record between us guys, a total hack. Totally ignore him. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Mike. Penguins. There are a lot of them, especially if you're in or around the South Pole. But the question is, just how many? And is this one the one we saw like eight minutes ago? It is true what they say about penguins. They kind of look alike. So, in an endeavor to get a good head count, or perhaps beak count, on these waddling animals, we have used science, we have used human engineering, and we have used Michelle LaRue, who is the gist's in-house penguin counter, and she is going to update us on the latest penguin counts that have been going on around the world. Michelle LaRue is also a research ecologist at the University of Minnesota. Hello, Michelle. How are you? Hello. I'm well. How are you? I'm well. So I remember a few years ago you were on because there was a, uh, a penguin count, the first penguin count, and you were at least one of the ones doing the counts. Uh, and I think back then, this was 2014, you found almost... Four million of which type of penguin? The Adelie penguin. The Adelie penguin. And why don't you tell us how you counted these penguins? Yeah, so in 2014, that uh, census was based on high-resolution satellite imagery. So basically what uh, Heather Lynch and I did was calculate the area of, of the bird's guano stain so that when they nest, they kind of live in their own filth. And we can use that information, though, to figure out how many birds there are. So that's basically what we did is we used this kind of an indirect way of figuring out how many birds there are. So in other words, the larger the guano stain, the more birds there are likely to be there. And so that's what that census in 2014 was based on. And, for is, the there, and is there a scientific consensus on the poop per penguin ratio? I mean, what if you had some uh, spectacularly irregular penguins? Your count could be off. Yeah, that's right. It could be. Um, but we, we did develop the model based on ground truthing data. So in other words, we were able to take images of these guano stains that happened to overlap at the exact same time where we knew exactly or 
pretty well how many breeding pairs there were um, at the exact same time. So we were able to to um, make those connections pretty well. And so then we were able to extrapolate around the rest of the continent. Right. So I got to say, back then, around 2014, when you had the number uh, 3.79 million breeding pairs, which were more than a million then was counted 20 years ago, I believed you. And then some new numbers came out and you shook my world upside down. I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) So what are the new numbers? Yeah, so the new number um, is based off uh, some colleagues of mine um, out of Australia and a couple other locations, and they are um, updating it. So what we now know is it's not just the number of breeding pairs. Uh, My colleagues were able to include the also the number of non-breeders. And that's a kind of a big deal because we we know that obviously there's lots of other animals that are out there and they're doing things called skip breeding or they're just kind of hanging out and not breeding. And it turns out there's more of those kinds of animals than there are the kind that come back and breed every single year. And so when we were looking at it from high resolution imagery, we knew that the number that we were giving was the number of breeding animals. Okay, so the new uh, your estimate of just the breeding pairs was, uh, like I said, almost 4 million. But now they're saying it's around 15 million of these penguins throughout the world. I think the estimate for breeding pairs that they have now is somewhere around, I don't know, four, like 5 million breeding pairs roughly. But they were able to add in the number of non-breeders. And that's how they come to the roughly 10 million individuals and potentially up to 14 to 16 million individuals mm. in the entire Southern Ocean. So it's um, it's adding to, you know, science always works on top of, you know, previous research, right? So they're able to expand and, and add to our knowledge. Yeah. And penguins always work on top of previous guano. And so that's exactly. <laughs> amazing. Why does it matter? Other than I love uh, counting penguins. Penguins are a really important um, part of the Southern Ocean ecosystem for a couple of reasons. Um, Adelie penguins, first and foremost, I think, are they're really the bellwethers of climate change because they have this kind of what it, what I call um, kind of a Goldilocks uh, relationship to sea ice. If the sea ice, the fast ice extent is too far out, that's not good. If it's too far in, that's not good. And that has to do with their primary prey, which is krill. So they need krill. Uh, to eat. And so, and krill need the sea ice. So there's that relationship there. But then in addition to that, we actually fish for krill in the Southern Ocean. And so that's the other reason that knowing how Adelie penguins are doing is important is because we fish for the same prey that, that they do. And so to make sure that we're not taking too much, too many resources out of the Southern Ocean, it's, it's a good thing to know how many Adelie penguins there are. Is a reason. So if they're a bellwether and if they're thriving, it might be tempting to say, okay, let's not be totally ignorant and say there's no such thing as global warming or it's not as bad as we thought. But, you know, maybe this is the first non-dire global warming referendum that I've heard in a while. However, as I thought, is that true? I remembered, wait a minute, maybe it could just be that their predators have been dying off also. Well, so... At, at the moment right now, what I'm what I'm thinking is we just now know more, which is always a good thing. So I, I um, am hesitant to make a leap to say whether it's good or bad necessarily, because there's a couple things that could be going on. So now that we know more and there are likely to be far more Adelie penguins in the Southern Ocean than we previously thought, that means that they are eating far more krill than we previously thought. And so given the catch limits um for taking krill out of the Southern Ocean are based uh, largely on lots of different science, but one of which is understanding how many Adelie penguins there are. Uh, It's possible that we may need to take a look at that again. 
but then again, on the other hand, yeah, I mean, perhaps uh, perhaps there are more Adelie penguins and maybe they're doing better than we thought. But I'm, I'm hesitant to say for sure one way or the other at the moment. Have you had much personal contact with Adelie penguins? I have. <laughs> are they nasty little birds? <laughs> they're um, the way I describe them, they're, they're really sassy and they have got some attitude, uh-huh. I think. If, if I'm, if I'm going to anthropomorphize, that would be the way I would do it. Right. Maybe they just think we're totally lame and not at all rambunctious. Could you, uh, I mean, everyone wants one as a pet. And I saw this movie called Mr. Popper's Penguins, which was, I believe, yeah. a National Geographic uh, documentary. That'd yeah. be bad. <laughs> That'd be a bad idea, right? Yeah, I, I would not recommend an Adelie penguin for uh, a pet. Uh, first and foremost, they smell. I mean, that's just a you know a not fun thing. Uh, but yeah, they, I don't know. They, like I said, they kind of just have this attitude. They don't. They're not particularly impressed with with people. Every time I've ever come across them, they're, I've always just felt that they were very unimpressed with my presence. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they're not. They're not terribly friendly, or they're just kind of you know they're sassy. Dr. Michelle Larue research ecologist at the University of Minnesota, our official GIST uh, penguin counter. Thank you so much, Michelle. Thank you. And now the spiel. Let's play one of my favorite games during the Trump era. It's called During a Normal Presidency. You've probably played it too, saying things like, During a Normal Presidency, a fake magazine cover dotting the president's properties would be a weeks-long embarrassment. Or, you know, During a Normal Presidency, shutting the press out of taping your spokesman would be, well, unspeakable. During a Normal Presidency, we would regard as warranting mental care Trump's answer to the question, why did you pretend to secretly tape your adversary when you didn't really secretly tape your adversary? Now, by the way, I'm going to play a little bit of that answer. It was actually the second goofiest thing he said in relation to the question. The goofiest thing was he was asked by top journalist Ainsley Earhart, hey, so why'd you, why'd you pretend to secretly tape the guy? And then she added, oh, so you were being really smart about it. And he said, it wasn't extremely stupid. All right, that's the second goofiest thing. Here's the goofiest thing. Well, I didn't tape him. Uh, You never know what's happening when you see that the Obama administration, and perhaps longer than that, was doing all of this unmasking and uh, surveillance, and you read all about it, and I've been reading about it for the last couple of months, about the seriousness of the and horrible situation with surveillance all over the place, and you've been hearing the word unmasking, a, a word you probably never heard before. So you never know what's out there, but I didn't tape, and I don't have any tape, and I didn't tape. Four score, and perhaps longer, and seven, but who's to say, seven years ago, our nation, which is a terrific, terrific nation, brought forth, though also fourth for four score, seven. You really never know how difficult a more perfect nation would be. Fantastic, sad. Do you remember this one time a beauty pageant contestant, Miss South Carolina, went on TV? You know, the high standards we hold beauty pageant contestants to. And she said something really stupid. She talked about uh, such as U.S. Americans. U.S. Americans. And those words alone made her famous. She went from obscurity to notoriety by the sheer dint of her not making sense in a paragraph. And in that paragraph, she made more sense than the president of the United States did. Footnote, that girl later signed a deal with Donald Trump's modeling agency. 
Okay, so it's a funny thing about this game that we're playing, which is called During a Normal Presidency, my favorite game. The premise is always exploded as soon as you give the example, right? Okay, let's pretend the world's normal. Now, let me tell you this thing the president of the United States did. And then, of course, you got to say, wait, I thought we were pretending the world is normal. All right, all right, you're right. That's how it's going to go. But let's just play it with this recent example during a normal presidency. Okay, two days ago, the White House put out a warning to Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. And they said that if his forces carry out another chemical attack, quote, he and his military will pay a heavy price. The statement came after American intelligence identified, quote, potential preparations for another chemical attack in Syria. Now, during a normal presidency, that would dominate the news for days. During a normal presidency, the military would immediately flesh out where this warning came from. They'd inform the populace. The Department of Defense would explain the threat. The Secretary of State would get the press corps who follows him and who he always talks to, get them together and brief them. And during a normal presidency, the press corps being briefed by the Secretary of State wouldn't say, oh my God, he's talking to us. That would happen during a normal presidency. And during a normal presidency, there'd be updates and check-ins because America would be really riveted to this and wondering what happened and wondering what it meant about the consequences of a chemical attack. That would all be going on. Now, what really happened, since it's not a normal presidency, is that reporters went to their sources. Central Command said, yeah, we have no idea what he's talking about. Hours and hours later, the Pentagon put together a statement saying, yes, what we saw was activity near the airstrip that could have been consistent with chemical weapons deployment. So was it real? I mean, what consequence was Trump planning? In a normal presidency, like the one before this one, warnings that were not followed through were used as a cudgel to criticize the president. But today, the warning to Syria was treated in two ways. The first way the most common way, was to write it off as, eh, you know, sometimes he pops off about the apprentice ratings or chocolate cake. Sometimes it's about Assad chemical weapons. Can't take these things to heart too much. But there was another line of thought, and that was that Trump's warnings worked. I will read to you a transcript from a press availability that Secretary of Defense Mattis held with reporters as he was flying to Brussels. Question, have you seen anything else that's worrying since Monday or Sunday as far as chemical weapons preparations? Mattis, it appears that they took the warning seriously. Wait, when you say that they took the warning seriously, what indications are there about that? Secretary Mattis, they didn't do it. Question, they didn't inaudible crosstalk. Mattis, they didn't do it. But not the suspicions, not what you saw inaudible. Secretary Mattis, they didn't do it. But the fact that they didn't do it, does that suggest to you that they completely turned it off? Or do you think there's a plot, an idea? Secretary Mattis, I think you'd better ask Assad about that. Uh, Side note, if you don't think Tillerson is giving the press a lot of interviews, Assad's not either. Okay. Question. Back to the plane to Brussels Q&A. Question. That's your sense of confidence in this? Secretary Mattis, I'm not paid to have confidence in this sort of thing. No, he's paid to protect America, but also to manage a president who, it seems, tweeted an ill-thought-out threat about a possibly imaginary action. Good job, Mr. President. Next, I'm going to sell you a magic whistle that scares away elephants. Wait, there are no elephants around here. See, it's working. Well, Secretary Mattis is certainly doing a good job managing up and managing down to help us all get past this incident that should have been a troubling and puzzling distraction if this were a normal presidency.
That's it for today's show. If Mary Wilson were a normal GIST producer, she would press record really readily with her finger and not use a series of complex if-then statements encoded in a flowchart. If GIST producer Chris Berube were a normal Canadian, he'd drive to work via maple syrup-powered Zambonis. If Steve Lichtai were a normal executive producer of Slate Podcasts, he'd crack down on a show host's vicious slander of the national origin of his producer. Then again, if Canada were a normal country, we wouldn't take quite so much license with our jibes. The gist. If this were a normal podcast, I'd have led with the chemical weapons and then eased into Dungeon Master humor toward the end. Oomperu deperu duperu, and thanks for listening.